RTP became the framing phrase of their response, which was to change the way we asked the question. So it's not a question primarily of the rights of interveners, but rather a question about how best to protect people from atrocity crimes. As soon as you move away from the idea of individual rights as a cornerstone for political ideology, and particularly in the context of war, you put yourself on a conveyor belt that leads towards things like collective responsibility, collective violence. Putin has achieved the very thing he didn't want to achieve, which is a strong sense of Ukrainian identity, shared identity forged in war, which is decidedly not Russian. Welcome to part one of my conversation with Alex Bellamy. As you'll hear, this was a far-ranging conversation covering topics such as R2P, origins of the world peace movement, similarities between the extreme left and extreme right, a discussion on the importance of individual rights as a protective mechanism against collective violence, the importance of ideology and narratives in motivating wars, the paradox of nationhood, where internal coherence often comes at the cost of external differentiation, galvanizing of identity when under threat, and a discussion on the ongoing internal contest for the American identity. Part two of this interview will be released on the 20th of October. Finally, if you're getting value out of the show, please consider becoming a patron of The Voices of War at patreon.com forward slash The Voices of War. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Alex Bellamy, who is a professor of peace and conflict studies and director of the Asia-Pacific Center for the Responsibility to Protect at the University of Queensland. Before moving to Australia, Alex was a lecturer in Defence Studies for King's College London at the UK's Joint Services Command and Staff College. Anyone who has come across Alex and his work knows that he is a prolific writer on various aspects of peace and war. He has published numerous books, and I've had the pleasure of reading two of them. The first one I came across a few years ago, titled Just Wars from Cicero to Iraq, and the other titled World Peace and How We Can Achieve It, which I've just finished last week and is the focus of our discussion today. His most recent book is Syria Betrayed, War, Atrocities and the Failure of International Diplomacy, and is currently writing Warmonger, Vladimir Putin's Imperial Wars, which will be published next year. Given the breadth of Alex's expertise, it's a real pleasure to host him on the show. Alex, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I said in the intro, but you really are a prolific writer. I just don't know how and where you find the time, especially your uh, professorship duties and uh, supervisory duties. But congratulations. Uh, incredible. Uh, thanks, Matt. You're too kind. I, I kind of say it's basically all the content is the same. It's just the titles are different. So <laughs> <smoking mirrors. laughs> well, well, well I, I've read two of your books, so I, I can, uh, I can uh, challenge that uh, straight away. But, uh, but I do appreciate the humility. Before we start unpacking some of the, I guess, the density uh, of peace and war, which you're so familiar with, how did you end up in this area? What, what drove your move into researching peace and war? So it, uh, it begins um, back in the, in the 1980s, uh, where I grew up in a small former mining village in South Yorkshire. And back then, the, uh, you know, the cheapest place you could go on holiday was uh, what was then called Yugoslavia. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, we oh I'll, I'll pretend not to be insulted by the cheapest part. <laughs> <laughs> Every year we would trek oh, the Adriatic yeah, for of uh, summer holiday, and I absolutely fell in love with the place. And um, all of my undergrad essays when I did international relations at uni, all of them had some sort of spin on, on Yugoslavia. Oh, my PhD wow. was on um, Croatian nationalism. What? Okay, um, this is not at all staged for the audience, just so you're, <laughs> you're tracking. Uh, this was not staged. I'm blown away. Sorry, go on. <laughs> uh, my first book uh, was on Kosovo. Um, whilst at the, uh, the Joint Services uh, College there, I spent a bit of time um, with K4 working on um, civil mill relations in Kosovo and the uh, basically disarming the KLA and that sort of thing and building wow. up some new security architecture in Kosovo in the first kind of couple of years of K4. Mm-hmm. Then um, randomly applied for a job in Australia. And back in the days before Zoom, it, it really wasn't kind of possible to keep up that level of work on Southeast Europe from Australia. Mm-hmm. So I had to kind of widen it out. 
And so I took the kind of the issues and, and, and problems and ideas that had informed the work on former Yugoslavia and, and sort of expanded that out into peacekeeping, ethics of war, and then eventually uh, RTP. And RTP has really been the mainstay of my work for the last kind of 10 or 15 years. And I, I started off with being an RTP skeptic when uh, the commission first reported. I thought, well, this will never get anywhere, will it really? Right. And then it did. Uh, uh, you know, we got the consensus of the UN and it took off. And, and, and so the last 10 or 15 years has been spent working on that. But it all starts on holiday with holidays on the Adriatic. <laughs> That's incredible. Wow. I mean, they talk about, you know, what, what, what kind of piqued my interest there was uh, Croatian nationalism. I find that fascinating because that, that is, uh, again, rearing its uh, ugly head literally today as we speak in Bosnia. And I'm not sure if you're tracking or following what, uh, what's what been happening with the Office of the High Representative, uh, but there's been some uh, challenging uh, issues uh, uh, in Bosnia that uh, is, is, is certainly being uh, fueled, if uh, at the very least, uh, by some Croatian nationalists, which is a, a fascinating topic. But also as, to, as far as R2P, is it then a coincidence that you arrived, pushed the R2P issue, and then Australia, funnily enough, is one of the biggest proponents or has been, if I'm correct, uh, of R2P. Uh, I, I would I would think that uh, you might have had something to do with that. It's it's well, it's partly a coincidence and partly me sort of jumping on the bandwagon. So um, you know, the original commission that came up with the idea of R2P was co-chaired by Gareth Evans, mm. foreign minister, and so Australia was sort of in at the at the entry point. Mm. And um, the centre that I run sort of span out of ideas that Gareth had about creating a global network of centres. So he set up one in New York, which is our sort of partner institution. Right. So I, um, I was sort of bandwagoning on Gareth. But it's been telling that governments of both stripes have, have backed RTP equally, so they've backed our centre equally. So Gareth succeeded in making it a non-partisan issue. Uh, and mm. so Australia's commitment has, has been fairly strong on RTP and, and, and governments of both both stripes have been amongst the leaders on RTP in New York. Mm, mm. So I, I don't want to get too bogged down just yet on RTP, but just a, a potted version for those who are unfamiliar with the responsibility to protect, just so they can actually contextualise what we're actually talking about here. Maybe you can give us just a, you know, a nutshell of what RTP actually is. Absolutely. So RTP comes out of those failures of humanitarianism in the 1990s and, and two sets of problems. One, the problem that we might call the problem of Rwanda's, which is mm. where you have a genocide, but nobody wants to step in to stop it. That's one problem. The other problem we might call the problem of Kosovo, where mm. you have ethnic cleansing and mass atrocities, but you have a divided UN Security Council. So what do you do? Should states act unilaterally outside the council, as NATO did in Kosovo? And there's a beautiful, for those interested, there's a beautiful um, series of speeches that Kofi Annan, who was then the UN Secretary General, mm. gave at the end of the decade. And he basically challenged the international community. He said, it can't be the case that sovereignty can protect the perpetrators of genocide from outside intervention. We can't have a world like that. But similarly, we can't have a world where states or groups of states just act outside the UN system, take their own license to intervene mm. wherever they want. We have to find a way of reconciling these mm. two things. Mm. And so um, Canada paid for a commission to study this issue, and that was the commission we've already talked about. It was co-chaired by Gareth Evans and Algeria's Mohamed Sanin, and they came up with the idea of the responsibility to protect. Gareth uh, tells the story of, of how the phrase popped into his mind uh, one day in the shower. Uh, so make of that of what course. you will. And they yeah. had a year of consultations and RTP became the framing phrase of their response, which was to change the way we asked the question. So it's not a question primarily of the rights of interveners, but rather a question about how best to protect people from atrocity crimes. And once you pose that question, mm. you find is, firstly, there are lots of other things that can be done short of intervention to better protect people. But B, where those other things fail, you create a set of responsibilities so that you try to nudge institutions like the Security Council to mm. recognize that it has responsibilities and to take action. Mm. This idea was negotiated and agreed by the UN in 2005. So in 2005, every single state in the world mm. signed up to a vision of the responsibility to protect. It Which is huge, right? That's not, that's, that's rare. Yeah, very yeah. rare, really huge. And it's, Worth bearing in mind, every state mm. signed up. 
And it says three things. One, they say all states have a responsibility to protect their populations from atrocity crimes. Mm. Mm-hmm. No ifs, no buts. We all have this responsibility. Secondly, we should all help each other to fulfill this responsibility. So sometimes atrocities happen not because it's the state that's perpetrating it, mm. but because the state is unable to protect its own population. So of think of, for example, UN peacekeeping missions with protection of civilians mandates. They fall in this second pillar of RTP. They're there to support the state and they're there with the consent of the state. Hmm. And the third step, which is the controversial step, is where all states agreed that when those first two steps are manifestly failing, the UN Security Council has a responsibility to take timely and decisive action, including the use of force should it be deemed necessary. Hmm. Now, we say that third bit is controversial. But it's important to stress that none of that is changing anything mm. in the UN Charter. So the powers that the UN Security has, Security Council has to authorize intervention existed since 1945. Mm. It's there in Article 39 of the UN Charter. It's always been there. So it's more a statement of commitment to mm. implementing already existing laws through already existing institutions. And the idea was that by binding states into this agreement, you could nudge them to more collective action, both pillars one and two. So thinking about how mm-hmm. you might use peacekeeping, how you might use economic measures, how you might support um, civilian architecture to protect populations, but also, of course, thinking about pillar three and armed intervention when it's necessary as well. Yeah, and and, and I guess having the, the moral courage to acknowledge when a wrong is being done and then taking action without letting your politics... Uh, get in the way. That it is a, it, it's a core function of the UN Security Council. It's not an added extra. It's yeah. a core function. And that's a change. You know, in the 1990s, the Security Council was often tied up in debates about are oh, mass atrocities really matters of international peace and security? Mm-hmm. Is something that happens in a single state? Is that really a concern of the, of the Security Council? As you know, the mm-hmm. UN had mm-hmm. a peace operation called the UN Protection Force. Mm. that wasn't mandated to protect anyone other That's than right. itself. Yeah. Um, go back to the 80s and 70s, and the, the whole idea that the UN might intervene to stop genocide and mass atrocities was anathema. Mm. People thought you were crazy if you suggested that that's yeah. what the UN Security Council was for. There's so many links there that I that, that I would love to love to unpack, I mean, and, and not least one that uh, comes to mind when I spoke, spoke with Tony Ingersoll from Lund University in, in Sweden, who did research on the kind of subcultures and and what drives a culture to stand up and and protect. But he talks about the Nordbat, the Northern Battalion too in in Bosnia, where the uh, lieutenant colonel, I mean, not a not a not a highly senior officer, but it, but but it showed you know the kind of the institutional trust from the Swedish national. Uh, military architecture to the person on the ground, you know, he decided that, no, no, if he is to really fulfill the mandate uh, of the UN Security Council, minus the politics, then he needs tanks, you know, he needs to be, you know, really, really upgunned and he needs to be able to stand up and fight, you know, the perpetrators of, as we now know, genocide uh, in Bosnia. And, and of course, they did that and, and have earned some great respect. Uh, Sweden, as a, as a nation, has earned some great respect in Bosnia because of that, because they really took the R2P Although this was before the actual concept of R2P, they took it to heart. You know, this is, this is a, there's a moral imperative that we need to protect those who can't protect themselves. That's right. And interesting, you mentioned Sweden. So I was, I was in Stockholm a couple of years ago and talking about Swedish peacekeepers in Mali. Right. Something similar. They'd been ordered to uh, retreat from an area that was, was, was coming under attack. They decided not to retreat and to stand their ground. As a result, the village that they were deployed in wasn't attacked. Hmm. Uh, but because the uh, the local commander had uh, disobeyed orders, he was subject to a, both a UN and a national inquiry as to why he'd done that. And But again, it goes to that question of moral courage that, that you raise and, and also his interpretation of the mandate. You know, if the mandate says use all necessary means to protect civilians, well, <laughs> there's a plain English version of what that means, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I, I find it ironic that it's uh, Sweden, which is, hasn't had war for 200 years and is, uh, you know, known as uh, as neutral, but it's really setting the standard of what apolitical and neutral really means. Uh, and that's the that's the irony of the UN. You can't send peacekeepers into a war zone without the teeth uh, to actually, well, enforce peace, <laughs> right? Which is yeah, which I think right. is. Uh, if I'm now guessing. And to kind of pivot now towards the, the the book World Peace, 
I think we have to link your passion for R2P and world peace because there obviously is a link because it's the book is emerging post your kind of R2P work. So what's the link? How do you link R2P to world peace and this book? Yeah, great. <laughs> there's, a, there's a funny little personal story about that. Is great. Great. <laughs> On the, uh, the day of the uh, Brussels bombings, you may remember a few years ago, ISIS. Uh, so I was in Brussels. Mm-hmm. I was uh, there as a consultant for the UN giving, a, a report to the EU on uh, basically the protection of civilians from non-state armed groups. And on that day, for reasons entirely unrelated to ISIS, I ended up in a, in a Brussels hospital and spent a week in a Brussels hospital. Right. A, a, a dear friend in Switzerland came and brought me home to Switzerland for a couple of weeks before I made it back to Australia. But it, that sort of three weeks of uh, sitting on my back and limited uh, reading options. <laughs> yeah. Thinking about the fact that, yeah, when you work in the world of R2P, you're, you're really in the world of band-aids. Unless you think more broadly about the underlying causes of, of, of war and atrocities, we're forever going to be in crisis response mode. Mm. Permanent state. And, and when you work, you know, you will have, had, you know, in your other podcasts, people who work in international humanitarian law in the humanitarian space, there's always a crisis. You know, the academic literature on humanitarianism it's always started with the idea that there's a crisis. It's a na- it's the nature of the beast. Mm. So this war peace book really kind of came out of that experience of being forced to sit on my back for three weeks and kind of realized that there are bigger sets of issues that we need to think about and we need to debate and discuss and that we often don't debate and discuss. Mm. And unless we think about those bigger issues, we're never going to move from crisis response mode. And so that was the impetus for, for starting to think about world peace. And uh, the kind of the tagline, if you like, for the book was, uh, you know, recovering world peace from the beauty pageants, trying to make something that is seriously studied, seriously thought about, and seriously uh, debated. And I was going to ask you what the response has been to your book, because, um, you know, have you found that the response has been like that? You know, that people viewed the book as, you know, naive optimist here, you know, dreaming of world peace. Yeah, totally, totally. So, yeah, okay. In the book, you know, and people say, oh, what are you working on? And they say, well, <laughs> world peace. You know, it's that, it's that moment in the cocktail party where you find yourself left alone, all people just rolling their eyes. <laughs> Leave the hippie over there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, there, there, was, there was quite a lot of that. And that's why, you know, in opening the book, I kind of try to stress the point that I'm not making the argument that it's likely, much less that it's inevitable, and I'm not even arguing that we're heading in the right direction. It's, mm. it's simply that this is something that is possible, mm. that we know some of the things that can be done to make the world more peaceful. Mm. And that the more of those things that are done, the more peaceful it, it, it would become. The other thing is that I kind of emphasize is that war peace isn't a kind of a finished state. It's not something you achieve and then you have it. Mm. It's something that's continually going to be worked for and strived for and that you're continually going to be facing challenges but it's in the striving that you achieve greater levels of peacefulness and lay foundations for, for mm. future peacefulness as well there are a lot of uh, a lot of cynicism skepticism but i should also say that on the other side the book hasn't has he gone down equally badly on the traditional peace activist side as well because mm. I'm, I'm trying in the book to make world peace more realistic and so sometimes in, in on the peace activism side there are certain assumptions that have actually inhibited peace movements in the past so one assumption is that you know war is just a pathology it's mm. it's and if you go in assuming that firstly you're misunderstanding war and secondly because of that you're not going to come up with ways of addressing why wars happen ways of managing wars ways of limiting wars Mm. And then also peace activists, there's, there's certain difficult canons. So, for example, you know, peace activists are ideologically opposed to the idea of nuclear weapons. And mm. there's good reasons why you would be ideologically opposed to nuclear weapons. But from that, you build assumptions that say nuclear deterrence fails, for example. And those assumptions are patently untrue. Mm. <laughs> and mm. it's yeah, a well, hard, you know, we're seeing it play out right now, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Just overnight, um, Stephen Pinker, who wrote this book on um, uh, the decline of war, kind of argued that Ukraine shows us that nuclear deterrence doesn't work. 
actually, Ukraine shows us the precise opposite. Um, Ukraine wasn't able to deter Russia, so it got invaded. Meanwhile, Russia is able to deter NATO, so NATO can't engage directly. Whatever else we might say about nuclear weapons, and there's <laughs> obviously all the downsides are well known, mm, mm, you mm. can't say categorically that nuclear deterrence doesn't sometimes work. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. Well, we're seeing that it that it does exactly, and we also saw it in. Uh, I mean, as, as close as we came to nuclear holocaust, really, uh, during the Cold War, it still allowed for a uh, for a well. That, that's the name, Cold War, right? It wasn't. It never went into the hot stage, which is which is really interesting. Uh, there's something that that really resonates with me as you're talking. Is the, the, in my head, what I see is that just like there's a recipe for war, or, or, or there are there are there are conditions. That will make war more likely, right? So, and we know this through through decades of research. We know that conflict rises when inequality rises. We know when people's livelihoods are threatened that the chances of some instance of, of conflict will occur. We know even when temperature is hot that there's a greater likelihood of conflict. And I guess if I'm reading your book right, what you're trying to do is you're gonna you're trying to turn the other side of the same coin, and that is that for peace, there are also conditions that will give a greater likelihood of, of peace to emerge or, or return or be sustained. And I guess that's what that, that's how I took the book, which is why it really speaks to me, because if I, you know, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast a number of times, I'm a, I'm a free will skeptic, uh, which we don't, we don't need to get into you know, the idea of free will or determinism because neither really matters. But I think what's important is realizing that we exist in an environment and we respond to that environment based on the stimuli that we receive. And if we are creating the right frameworks for us to engage with the other, whoever the other might be, in a more peaceful, more cohesive way, then we're therefore reducing the chances uh, of any kind of mis misunderstandings uh, and conflict. But maybe where we can, uh, uh, one place where I do want to start or, or get to now is the fact that this is nothing new. We have this, I guess, resistance to the idea of world peace, but world peace, there's a giant history of peace movements, right? Can you maybe just in a nutshell give us again a, a broad overview of the extent to which the peace movement uh, has gotten to, and then perhaps why it kind of fell off into the hippie movement uh, and the idealists, I guess. Just before I do that, I just wanted to kind of underscore, yeah, your sense of the, the focus of the book is absolutely right. And the way to kind of explain it really simply would be to say, so there's a, there's a body of literature that links um, civil war in Syria to the droughts that occurred in Syria in the, in, in the years leading up to it. And it says mm. basically drought created all sorts of issues, leads to civil war. The problem with that is precisely the same external stimulus, so precisely the same drought in, say, Queensland mm. does not have the same effect. Yeah. Creates problems, but those problems are managed. In, so what is the difference? What is going on in Queensland that means that the same, exactly the same meteorological event doesn't produce the same outcomes. Mm. And that's where you get into governance, democracy, human rights, economic well-being and justice, all of that. So it's exactly as you say. And if we can kind of unpack what's going on, what are the sorts of things that stable states do that other states don't do and do more of that, then yeah. we're, we're on to something. And, a few years ago, I supervised a PhD student who asked exactly that question. And what he did was, was to compare three countries in sub-Saharan Africa that were neighboring countries that had very similar backgrounds in terms of colonial backgrounds, very similar ethnic mixes, but then had very different trajectories post-independence. So, mm. for example, looking at Botswana, why is it that Botswana didn't go down the same path as many of its neighbors? So what was going on there and trying to kind of learn from that? So. Yeah, you, you you take exactly what I'm trying to do in the book, which is trying to unpack what makes certain states and societies uh, more peaceful and some of the paradoxes that come with that. Well, I mean, just again, just to touch on that, I mean, what, why is it a country like Sweden that hasn't had war for 200 years that's actually willing to stand up for R2P and go and fight, right? So, there has to be a reason, yeah. you know, in the evolution of this nation, we, you know, the imagined community we call Sweden, 
um, right, which is what it is, uh, to, and I forget the, the author's name of that phenomenal book, uh, oh, my God, Imagine Communities. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I might. Benedict Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, an incredible book. Um, you know, it, there, is, there has to be a reason in the evolution of that country why Sweden is the one that's actually standing up <laughs> for R2P, which is the yeah. you know one of the least. The interesting pieces. about Sweden, of course, is that Sweden wasn't always like this. Sweden was once an aggressive imperialist. That's right. Yeah, which, which again goes to a, another sort of key theme of the book, which is our immense capacity for change. I mean, Japan managed that change in one yes. generation. Yes. I mean, yes. so this, Germany, yeah, yeah. 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 So we we have this capacity for change and, and adaptation. Yeah. Um, which gets me on to peace moves. To come back to the question of uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I keep sidetracking you here. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the irony, I guess, of, of, of the global peace movement is that it reached its greatest pinnacle at the very moment of its greatest catastrophe, which is 1914. And in 1914, literally millions of Europeans are members of peace societies attending meetings, attending international conferences, developing all sorts of schemes for, for world peace. It is seen as something that is fundamental. And you have different sorts of peace movements. You have a kind of Christian-based movement, non-conformists. And of course, you have the Marxists and, and the, the whole idea of the Marxist international. Mm-hmm. And it's it's the lesson of the Marxists, I think, where you've got the kind of the greatest shock of 1914, because... In Marx, you know, the, the closing statement, workers of the world unite. So there's mm. this assumption that as the world hurtles to catastrophe, the workers will realize their common solidarity and will reject the impulse to war. But of course, what happens after the assassination of Franz Ferdinand is quite in, in the Balkans again, in Syria, by my birth city again. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying there's a pattern here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah. and, and talk about historical, you know, we talk about these immense structural features, this, this huge collision of power, yet had Franz Ferdinand's driver not reversed down the wrong road in Sarajevo. The yeah. whole of human yeah. history <laughs> would have changed. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's 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 remarkable. But of course, what happens after that is that the workers of the world don't unite. They rally behind their nations. It turns out that nationalism has a greater pull on them than does Marxist solidarity. And mm. you have all of these peace movements. They do the same thing. And it's what's kind of striking is how quick and rapid it is. It, it isn't even. A, much debated. So you have diehard pacifists and peace activists themselves becoming caught up in this kind of, well, to, as we look back on it, we tend to call it, now we tend to think of it as war fever and we think mm. of you know, everyone was thinking the war is going to be over by December and, you know, mm. that's mm. not actually what happened. In fact, very few people thought the war was going to be over by December. Most people who thought about the war at all thought it was going to be a massive struggle. Mm. But to come back to where we started about just wars, people on both sides believed that it was a just, necessary war to fight. Mm, but mm. you had this kind of collective impulse. So, I mean, Sigmund Freud had to go back and start redoing some of his theories because he was like, how do I get caught up in this? I thought mm. I was a rational, sensible person. And there suddenly I was waving the Austrian flag and going, yes, let's go and crush Serbia. Mm, for mm, reasons mm. that when he looked back at it, it was like, what was going on there? Mm, mm. So you had this this destruction of global peace movement at, ironically, the moment of its greatest power. Now, it comes back slightly after the First World War in the form of national movements in support of the League of Nations. Yeah. Uh, and again, yeah. in Britain, you have this sort of national subscription and a national plebiscite that shows huge support for the League of Nations. But again, as the League creaks and fails, that support ebbs away. And then, of course, into the Cold War, the peace movement then moves into a, a kind of anti-nuclear movement, mm-hmm. pro-disarmament. It has an uncomfortable relationship with, with the Soviet Union. And again, let's be, let's be frank. Parts of the left of the, uh, of the peace movement had a significant blind spot when it came to mm. Stalin, for example. Mm. Um, yeah. And still does. You know, you look today at, at the so-called anti-war movement. 
a lot of it is pro Mr. Putin's wars. Yeah. And, and anti wars, um, opposed. So there's a kind of an ideological blind spot there. Which, which again is really funny. If I can just take your view on this, I mean, uh, you know, the far left and the far right are actually really close together, you know, in some of these views, right? Because as you're saying now about Mr. Putin's war, there's this kind of idea in the far right circles that what he's doing is, 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 you know, is protecting you know, his, his people, his country, and he's standing up against the aggression of, you know, the establishment and the global empire. And of course, we're hearing the same on the far left. Uh, Absolutely. What, yeah. Absolutely. So a few years ago, I wrote a book called Massacres and Morality. Of course you wrote a book. Yeah. yeah I <laughs> no, I read it, but I read it. And what I was doing is trying to trace the, uh, the principle of civilian mm. immunity, but mm-hmm. trace it kind of in practice. And one of the big anti-civilian immunity ideologies, I called the, uh, an ideology of selective extermination, which basically says that, look, some people are just not fully rights-bearing people, so it's okay to exterminate them. And what's interesting mm. is both communists and fascists, in explaining their selective exterminations, they use precisely the same logics of argument, that there are certain groups of people either by membership of a particular class, you know, like Ukrainian kulaks, or members of a particular ethnic or national group like the Jews, don't have the same rights as the rest of us. So exterminating them is not as bad as it would be to exterminate, you know, Russians or Germans, for example. Mm. Hmm. And, but stru- although the, the kind of the surface noise of their arguments look different because they're picking on different groups, mm. the actual moral logic of what they're saying is almost identical. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's motivated by the same, which, which again is is fascinating, and and again, this talks to the power of narrative and the power of of identity to really deeply embody beliefs that you know, if you were pulled out of that, if you were pulled out of that social group, slapped around a little bit, and went, hold on a minute, do, do you actually realize what you're saying? Let's look at let's look at what your narrative looks like from this angle, from this angle, or from this angle. Most of us would hit a hit a cognitive bumper. That would maybe make us ask questions. But whilst we're inside this fever, inside this, again, and I, and I asked you the question about the ideology uh, in, the, in some of the questions I sent you before, uh, which I'll get to in a second, but it strikes me as that there's this, there's this kind of, it's, it's almost like a glue between people, but also it gives you internal coherence as to how you view the world, which then comes to this idea of nationalism. And you really made a point that nationalism, when we were talking about World War I, really overrode the leaps and bounds humanity had made in embracing the idea of world peace. How does this happen? Why does it happen? And I think even in the book, you talk about its evolutionary significance. Um, so, so maybe if you can weave those in, uh, in, in, I know I've kind of been a little bit incoherent here, but over to you, Professor. I first just come on to the kind of, just to kind of wind back one, um, I think this is why, the idea of individual rights is really important. As soon as you move away from the idea of individual rights as a cornerstone for political ideology, and particularly in the context of war, mm. you put yourself on a conveyor belt that leads towards things like collective responsibility, collective violence. Mm. That's where individual rights are so significant. And, and I think one of the struggles that we have right now is in kind of late modernity is that the foundations of rights is being called into question. So one of the horrible long history lessons, but the Christian revolution achieved, the Christian revolution basically achieved the idea eventually of saying, in the eyes of God, everyone is equal. Now to a Greek or a Roman, that sounded absolutely nuts. Like, of course they're not equal, Mm. but that was the Christian revolution. And so you had a basis there for individual rights because in the eyes of God, everyone is equal. Once we move to a kind of a, you know, after Nietzsche killed God, the question is mm. where did these rights come from? You have, you know, US Declaration of Independence says these are kind of inalienable and um, unquestioning, which tells you that then that probably neither of those things. There's <laughs> yeah. the question of well, where did these rights come from? And, and as they're increasingly challenged, you open the door to collectivism. Yeah. To, um, collective violence. Uh, and that way leads to things like, well, you know, sometimes you just have to torture and kill some people in order to achieve a higher goal. Mm. That's where, why I think, um, rights are so fundamental and are much more vulnerable than we kind of think they are that unless we, 
make better arguments for rights and centre rights, we, you're we're in real danger. Yeah, of, um, I, I never thought about it to that depth, uh, and it, but now that you say it, it, it's almost it's it's a it's a slippery slope. If you just ever so slightly go, well, maybe just it's kind of the gateway drug to to the opium of the people, right? <laughs> which you know, of course, will be then the nationalism and and any kind of ideology, right? Which which is I've never thought about it that way, and it, but it, but it really makes sense. Yeah, yeah and this is where I, um, to come back to uh, thinking about ideology. We talk uh, again that that horseshoe. Mm, like, mm, mm-hmm. Why so many? If you think of kind of post nineteen eighty nine, why did so many former communists mm. become ardent nationalists? Is because they're very similar. That th- they are much more similar than say communism and liberalism. Huh. They're both collective, so they, the group is more important than the individual. The leader is more important than they. So you have a set of structural similarities huh. between, say, communism and, and nationalism, let's say, than you do between, say, communism and, and say, liberalism that turns the whole relationship on its head and says, well, actually, there are certain things that the state can't do. Individuals are free to choose their own identities. Maybe individuals will have multiple identities and maybe the salience of those identities will be different in different sorts of situations. Whereas communism wants to narrow everything down to class. Mm-hmm. Nationalism wants to narrow everything down to nation. Wow. That's a penny drop moment for me when, when I think about the, you know, and, and former Yugoslavia and what's happened in the kind of post-communist Yugoslavia, socialist Yugoslavia in the emergence in, repla- you know, replacing Tito. And, you know, the, the very same players that were surrounding Tito they couldn't do what Tito did. In other words, they couldn't unite a nation of disparate identities, but they still had been programmed in the same kind of mannerism, same behavior, same habits as to how a society or social group should function. The only thing that remained for them is the idea of nation and nationalism or, or ethnicity, uh, which was very closely, in, in, as you know fully well, in, in the Balkans, ethnicity and nationality are so closely intertwined, and that's one of the underlying <laughs> causes in many ways for, for the conflict. So yeah, I, I, that's a penny drop moment for me. That's a, that's that, that link between uh, the cognitive leap between communists and nationalists. Yeah, yeah. So precisely because it locates the individual, it locates just two things. It, it locates the individual as part of a bigger whole, and that gives individuals a sense of purpose that is above and beyond themselves. Hmm. And it also ties them to a past and a future. So it, it links them to a, a past, often an imagined past. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think of uh, Vladimir Putin invoking the Kievan Rus. There's about a thousand year gap between Kievan Rus collapsing and Russian nationalists going, "Hey, you know what? I think we're we're the inheritors of." <laughs> As yeah. if nothing had happened much in the thousand years in between. Yeah. But so you have that link to an imagined past, but also a link to a future and a link to some sort of project that's bigger than oneself. Mm. Again, this attaches to war because one of the things that some of the literature gets wrong about war is when we associate war with kind of human aggression. And we mm-hmm. say, well, you know, war is a product of human aggression. Well, actually, war is not primarily about human aggression because a, an army full of individually aggressive people who are pursuing their own self-interests through aggression is not a very coherent army. In fact, you're going to really struggle to get anyone to volunteer to fight in that army at all if they are just driven by their immediate self-interest and aggression. A, a war is a highly cooperative mm. undertaking. It involves people volunteering to sacrifice their own immediate self-interest in order for some greater good. Now, Sometimes they might be mercenaries and that greater good is going to be just monetary payoff, but you can't mobilize mass armies. Mm. You know, Wagner can do quite well, but they're already starting to scrape the barrel mm. <laughs> of what mm. they could mobilize through, through cash alone. So you need some bigger, bigger idea that will persuade people that what they are sacrificing themselves for is, is a greater good, the good of others. And again, this is where, you know, in the Western world, you, you can also link back to a Christian ethic, the, the mm-hmm. idea that our ethics is about not just about us and our own excellence, mm. but our relationship and care for others. It's not, yeah. you, know, you can find other traditions that say the same thing, but in yeah, the Western yeah, yeah. world, whether you buy the theology or not, you can't miss the, the kind of the power of the, of the morality underpinning that, that kind of central move. And so nationalism ties people together that way. 
Mm. And of course, it has also a relationship to a state in that a state is often promoting those sort of civic virtues as well. And one thing I talk about in the book is that this creates a paradox because this combination, on the one hand, solves the problem of internal violence. So mm-hmm. if we, you know, do, if we do the, the Thomas Hobbes move, and go, what would life be like without a state? Well, it'd be nasty, brutish, and short because mm-hmm. we'd all be struggling for our own security and we'd all have to use force preventively on our neighbours to stop them doing the same to us. How do we get out of that problem? Well, we have a state that has a monopoly on coercive power. We all agree to submit ourselves to the state. What we can add to Hobbes's Leviathan is that a state that relies on coercion alone is not going to be very efficient and effective. It's going to spend most of its resources coercing. Mm-hmm. So it's better if people voluntarily follow the state so you get legitimation. And that can be through you know, nationalism is one of the more powerful sources of legitimacy. So we follow the law, not only because we think the state will punish us if we don't, but because we think it's the right thing to do, because we're part of a community of people mm-hmm. that have similar values, similar aspirations, want the same thing. You know, we all we perform certain rituals together at the yeah. same time. Yeah. And that yeah. bonds us together. And that solves the problem of day-to-day violence. You know, and as a result, the rise of the modern state is associated with a sharp decline in everyday violence. And we still have you know, intimate partner violence, it's still a big issue. But we don't have, you know, the daily garrottings down the road. You're not likely to have your house invaded tonight and burnt down. And if it does, it's strong likelihood that the perpetrators will be caught and punished. Mm. Now, the flip side, though, of that is that those groups that are the most successful acquire identities and, uh, and senses of common purpose that are really, really strong. Mm-hmm. But they're also very, very different to those of the neighboring communities. So in solving one problem, you create another problem, which is that you end up with neighboring groups with different languages, different sets of moral values, different sets of perceived interests, different senses of their own history and future destiny. And therein, you build a causal logic for war. And war, not just about the kind of clash of material interests, Mm -hmm, some mm -hmm. are just about material interests, particularly in the past. Where whether you know whether you controlled a particular cornfield, determine whether you're going to starve the next winter or not. But mm. most wars nowadays are not like that. What you have is clashes of values, of identity, of destiny. Mm-hmm. So again, if we look at Ukraine right now, what this is a war about Russian identity. Mm-hmm. Russia, a country that has always been to some extent imperial, right the way back to the the Grand Duchy of Muscovy. Russia's been uncertain about what Russia means, and it's always had a quasi-imperial view. And oddly, its sense of its own identity is connected to a foreign country, Ukraine. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, how many, how many capital cities have a statue to a saint associated with another capital city in their central square? Mm. Um, and so you have a, you know, clash of There's a tension there immediately, even in, yeah, historically a tension that, that's being lived out as we speak. Yeah, now. that's yeah. right. So that's the kind of the core paradox, if you like, of, of, of the nation and the modern state, that in solving one problem, it creates another. And it's also why, you know, projects like the European Union, as boring as the European Union often is these days, but mm. it's an immense revolution because what the European Union is trying to do is resolve then that international problem. Not by doing what Tito did, if you like, and mm-hmm. kind of subjugating national identities to some other identity that no one quite buys into. When the EU has tried to do that, it has failed utterly. Mm, yeah. But by bringing them together into a new sort of shared destiny and shared identity. A super identity that kind of sits above the, the right. local, individual, tribal, whatever it might be, you know, to the cantonal, to the national, to the regional, to then the kind of pan-European in many ways. That's right. Yeah. Which, which is a really, it's, it's such a powerful, I mean, if, if I understand what you're saying right, it, it correctly, is that the idea of a state has solved this kind of problem of the other in my immediate uh, neighbourhood, right? So if I take an island nation like Australia, whatever it means to be Australian or Australia, uh, it you know it's captured on this island and it creates a level of certainty with those that I'm dealing with because we all you know have the same passport, we all broadly speaking, uh, uh, share the same values, et cetera, et cetera. 
But what the problem is that it's increased because of that increased identity, national identity of Australia, it's, it's, it's created a bigger gap between Australia and now a new other, uh, you know, whoever that other might be. And therefore, it, it, it makes it much easier, much more palatable to attack the other to prevent, to, to protect this current new uh, identity that I've developed. There's a question here as well about um, that, that just kind of springs to mind. Given that the experiment nations like the US and Australia and Canada that are kind of, you know, we Australia is 23% foreign born. I think the US is not far off that or it's around there anyway. And they're often re referred to, you know, as experiments, this kind of social experiment of bringing multiculturalism into one place and blending it into a one new national identity. Do you think, particularly in the US case, is there any link between forging and building a national U US identity with its kind of almost aggressive stance towards the world and its kind of uh, a militarization. And this is just a question that popped up into my mind now as you were talking. And so, so it's an unprepared question, but do you, do you see what I'm asking, where I'm getting at? Is that because of this tension that you're describing, you know, creating an us here versus them over there, the moment my us, my identity is, strength, uh, is threatened, it strengthens. And we're seeing this in Ukraine. If, you know, the Ukrainian identity has been threatened and it's galvanized. It's re reacted with an equal and opposite uh, reaction to the Russian uh, invasion. Uh, so, you know, maybe maybe any thoughts if you have on, 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 yeah, on this kind of broad... Yeah. yeah, I mean, firstly, on, on, on Ukraine, for I pivot to yeah. the US, uh, uh, yeah, you're completely right. I mean, the key outcome of the war, whatever happens now, is that Putin has achieved the very thing he didn't want mm. to achieve, which is a strong sense of Ukrainian identity, shared identity, forged in war, which is decidedly not Russian. Mm. <laughs> and mm. that was that was the thing he was hoping to avoid. And it's uh, and for sort of Australian listeners, the way I've sort of thought about it is that this is kind of Ukraine's Gallipoli moment, mm. but a million times more intense mm. because they're not fighting on some distant shore. They're fighting yeah. on their own lands. They're not fighting an unknown enemy. They're fighting a, a neighbor. And it's also not just a small section of society. You know, Gallipoli, it's a small number of Australians who are directly involved. This is all Ukraine. This is a whole of society phenomena. And, and, and you're seeing a, a galvanization of the Ukrainian nation and also a resolution to tensions, questions in Ukrainian politics about what it means to be Ukrainian. Is it a sort of a Eurasian identity or is it a Western identity? Are we looking back to history or looking forward? All of those things, with every kind of missile that Russia fires at, at Ukraine, it is helping to resolve um, those those very questions. Mm, um, mm, a war often tends to have clarifying effects. Go all the way back to my my PhD on on Croatian nationalism. One of the things that I found was that a sentiment in Croatia about the vision of nationalism that the government was selling was very much influenced by your proximity to the war. Mm. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I mean, the Herzegovina and Croats, you know, they're their own species. Yeah. Um, but those within main, you know, main, mainland Croatia, let's call it. Yeah. That were directly impacted by the war were much more likely to buy into the government's narrative than those, say, like the Istrians, for example, who never more than a third of Istrians bought into what Tushman was selling. Yeah. There was always a huge degree of skepticism. Yeah. Even now, it's funny you say that. Istria is the only one that's voting central parties, and it's the only one that still has Tito's street names. Yeah. Uh, it still has partisan uh, monuments, uh, which is a really, really, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a very, very kind of cosmopolitan in their approach yeah. to the world. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and it shows how ideas and practices mm. relate. So if a narrative of this other constitutes a threat, if it turns out that the other actually does constitute a threat, if shells are actually landing just down the road, well, then you're going to buy into it. And you're going to do it, A, because you believe it, but also because in your search for security, you will rally behind those offering security to you. So you're more likely to buy into it. So onto the US, and I'm yeah. absolutely no expert on, on, on the US at all. I would say very strongly yes, and I would say it's wrapped in that ideology of manifest destiny. Mm -hmm. And this idea that America itself is is a is a providential state bestowed by uh, you know benevolent God mm. to achieve great things in the world, and of course there's a dark side, 
as there is to most state building projects, but very clear in, in Australia and in, in the US, which is, of course, the extermination of indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. And that was driven by manifest destiny. It must be that we are legitimate in doing this. And you've got, you know, wrapped in as well with ancient ideas about providential war. And again, something that I, I always tell my students about, they think of providential war as something that was, you know, a thousand years ago. Mm, mm. The idea that decision on the battlefield tells you God's will. So, you know, if you win, then you must be right. Because if you weren't right, you would have lost. Mm. Still very, very powerful. And it's there, you see it in the US westward expansion. Mm-hmm. And you see it in the sense of American exceptionalism. This idea that America is different to other countries, not just because of its material power, but because of its providential role. In fact, it has material power because of its providential role. And so you have this sort of sense, sense of American power. The, the flip side, though, and it's easy in the conversation to kind of overgeneralize. Yeah, yeah. It's important to stress that this is always contested. Mm. Uh, and, and the other thing about the US is it was also the great experiment in democracy. Mm-hmm. Um, the experiment to which Europeans and others would look to as well. How is this? Yeah. Um, you know, one of my favorite political theory books is Alexis de Tocqueville's Travel Around America, trying to understand, well, what is this thing called democracy and is it going to take off and is this something we could do in France? But that means that all of these things have always been contested. So, you know, right now in US politics, you've got this kind of great contest between an increasingly bizarre republicanism and a sense of kind of extremist Protestantism. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you've got the other America, which is the America of Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. like too, Barack Obama and Joe Biden. And that's a very different vision of what America's place um, in the world should be. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Voices of War. And since you got this far, please take a moment to like and review the show wherever you get your pods. Also, if you're able, please consider showing your support through our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Thank you, and until the next time.